Only in Jeff Styles America. Hey folks, and welcome back to Fred Podcast. Fredpodcast.com and JeffStylesAmerica.com. Check it out. Um, we appreciate you joining us, listening to us, whenever it's us or if it's just a me, it doesn't make any difference. It's, it's, it's important to me that you're there because I don't want to be talking to myself because that gets you thrown into a psychiatric ward very quickly. And it actually would even give me more encouragement if you would subscribe to the podcast at some small level, $5 a month, $50 a month, $5,000 a month, whatever you feel is appropriate for the type of entertainment you get here at fredpodcast.com. My guest in here today is a very good friend of mine and a a unique person, I would say a character, without a doubt. I mean that with uh, the utmost respect. I have nothing but respect for characters. God knows we need more of them and less dull, boring people on the planet. His name is Dr. Clark White. He is a certified historian, a teacher, and he is also Deacon Blues when he goes on stage. And he becomes a totally different person. And Blues is his mainstay. And hey, good to have you, but so glad to be here on the planet. I gave you a brand new phone, but you said I went in Cadillac. I bought you a ten dollar dinner, and you said thanks for the snack. But you live in my pit house, you said it was just a shack. Yeah, exactly. Not under the ground. There's so many that have gone down recently. Now, uh, Deacon is a native of Chattanooga, left, came back, probably left again, came back. Um, He actually was raised with uh, the legendary actor Samuel L. Jackson, very good friends with him, who also is from this area. And uh, what got me started about wanting to talk to Deacon, I had him on the radio show just uh, the day before yesterday, uh, Fred the Show at NougarRadio.com was he just sent me a couple of pictures of him up at uh, Sam's uh, birthday party up in New York. And I was going, damn, Deacon's Deacon's a badass, man. I mean, he's hanging out with, I mean, I don't know who all those people were, but I recognized them. Dude from Black Panther, Kanye, I don't know who the heck they were. But, um, I mean, that's, I mean, for, for you, you, you're, you're, you're one of us, and you rub elbows with these puff folks all the time. That's got to be a, a switch of gears. But I don't talk about it. They, and, they're, and they're just like us. They are normal people who were very prepared and luck and opportunity met at the crossroads, and they became very successful. When I was in New York, I happened to walk down Broadway and looked on two marquees, and there were friends of mine. On one side, it was American Me with Kenny Leon and Gene Lee, and on the other side, it was Latanya Richardson starring in to kill a mockingbird. How about 40 that? years ago, we w- we couldn't put two nickels together to leave 143rd <laughs> Street to get down to the theater district. 40 years ago, Sam Jackson used to sit on the fire escape as an understudy at those shows. Hard luck and trouble been my only friend I've been on my own ever since I was 10 born on a bad side Life is really changed, and, I'm, and I really enjoy seeing my friends do well because his success is my success. We've always been like that. I, I agree. I'm, I am, I'm not down with the schadenfreude, being, you know, happy in other people's misery. I don't understand that, but we right. seem to have a, a, 
uh, a lot of it in America these days. I wanted to start very quickly, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, on just a current event, and given, given I mean, the nature of podcasts, there's no telling when you guys are listening to this, but we just announced the last podcast was the festival announcement. Riverbend uh, has been around almost 40 years. It, it literally is almost unequaled in this country as a music festival, but it's also been very unusual in its length, eight, nine days, uh, depending on how you count. And uh, it kind of locks the city down, uh, downtown, and this is a downtown that used to be dead, and now it's thriving. And so they changed it to just four days and nights, and the, the most, well, the hit dog hollers, and the dog that got hit the most and the hardest were the people, the fans of the Bessie Smith Strut which was one of the events they did, well, the only event they did off-site, off away from the river, and they went back downtown to MLK Boulevard, and they celebrated another uh, Chattanooga icon and legend, Bessie Smith, the Empress of the Blues. And it was always the city's best party, and I knew that when they shortened it, there would be a backlash, and I just want you to help me out because when they listen to the old white you know, hillbilly here, uh, they don't believe me. It was not something that we wanted to do. It was something that was done, and we just have to deal with it. Well, you're talking about the hillbilly. The black redneck over here says what? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, this thing has a history. When I first moved to town in 2006 and met you guys, one of the first things Chip Baker asked me to do was to go over to the Bessie Smith Hall and see if they'd make a financial contribution. Which was a free party. Which was at the tune of $5,000. What people don't know is the Bessie Smith Strut has basically been subsidized all of these years by funds from Riverbend. Two two years ago, it was announced publicly and privately that the Riverbend Association was pulling back from producing the strut and that the strut would have to become self-sustaining. But we need to clear that up first of all. They've known that. This is something that just didn't come out of the air. Uh, this is nothing that's being provoked to do something to someone. Well, you know, the TV reporters out. and anchors have switched out five actually, times since actually, then. Actually, people need to look at this. The move is from a social welfare model to a self-sustaining do-for-yourself model. So this time now for people who really have an interest to step up with their checkbooks and their money and their talent to celebrate the music. Now, I suggest that they put four tenths with stages on ML King the same way they do at Jazz Fest and feature all the local bands who've come up in the community. I would even have a gospel stage. Sure. I'd have an R&B, a blues, and whatever. And just, But I would promote the local musicians if they are brought up to par in terms of how they look in their stage. Mm-hmm. And we sell that. You're going to have to have a fence because any place in America that has any kind of music festival has got to be policed. Unfortunately, that fence costs ten yeah. to fifteen thousand dollars. Talent may be another twenty. So you're looking at a thirty thousand dollar nut, and I think that money could be made back if it was marketed correctly, like Memphis and May was marketed correctly. Sure, like they do in the Delta, Mississippi. I mean, Clarksdale now has about three major festivals a year because they all come together. But that's the real story. No one was taking advantage of people had a heads up two years ago that the strut would have to be self-sustaining and the major sponsor would have to be the Bessie Smith 
cultures. People always look for a scapegoat, though, and somebody to blame. And the fact is, the event's going to move to the fall. It's going to the name's going to be changed, which I personally don't understand. It seems like when you have a brand, you just stick with the brand, but it's going to be the Big Nine something or other. I didn't know they really yeah, are going to have. Yeah, them. they're going to do something in the fall. And I, I was thinking, I'm looking at my friend Strat over here, who's uh, kind of just uh, hawking over us like Snoopy doing his vulture imitation right now and watching this go on. And I was thinking of Bell Share up in Asheville, which is a two-day event, and it may be the only one I know of now that is not gated in any way. I mean, you just walk up. I mean, you can walk around the entire city of Asheville in an hour. It's not that big. But Asheville, North Carolina is semi-rural, basically a laid-back hippie town. Yes, it is. It's a different dynamic in putting on a festival in a situation like that. We're in a major urban area in the southeast, which requires some police. I learned that at Riverbend. Yes. And at Riverfront Nights. Now, Riverfront Nights is free, but we... We kind of keep our eyes open to what's going on. Well, you on. have to, and it's, it's a great gig in and of itself. Right. But, I mean, yeah, it, basically when you pour a, you know, 60% of the people that are going to go to this event are coming from suburban white areas, and they're going to a neighborhood that, unfortunately, many of them, if they were honest, would say they probably wouldn't go to or wouldn't have gone to, at least in the past, um, there's bound to be some conflict, and there's yeah, the folks see, that, that live there. Get, get, yeah, yeah, I know it. They, the folks that live there get a little bit bitter, but they've and, been pushed out. Yeah, but you know, Chattanooga lost twenty five hundred of its black citizens, and most of those areas that we're talking about have changed in terms of the racial composition, especially in the Ninth Street Big Nine area and on the it's south part of the UTC campus. Now. So, I mean, there has been development in Chattanooga. We've talked about this before, but there's also been a lot of displacement of folk now. That's that's all I want to go to on that. I just wanted to go ahead and ask you some some general questions very quickly. I said you 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 are a character. You're this guy sitting here. When you go on stage, you become somebody totally different. If y'all have never seen him and his band perform, it, they're they're absolutely phenomenal. And uh, the the mindset of first just being an entertainer on stage and how you flip that switch, but also the attraction to the blues as an art form? Well, it goes back into my family. I had a great uncle who played what they call boogie-woogie barrel house piano music on the old west side of Chattanooga. Yeah, the keys on raining, going to break. Yeah, the keys on raining, going to break. And all these people out on play today. At the turn of the century, his name was Pet White. If pimp? Fort Pet. Oh, okay. P- I, I was, I'm pimp. sorry. I, I thought you said pimp, and I was going to go. Oh my uh, God! Pet was, White. Uh, yeah. uh, and it started as a kid. Uh, a lot of kids might remember the first time they experienced heat, or they experienced light. For me, it was the first time I experienced middle C on an upright, very ornate piano on the old West Side when my aunt gave me piano lessons. And I, as I told you the other day. My first public performance was at four years old on old Channel 12 WDEF Miss Marsh's show where I sang 
the Yellow Rose of Texas dressed up in a cowboy outfit. Would you like to do that? No, not now. <laughs> um, from the time I was in the fourth grade, and Sam Jackson experienced this too, so did Reuben Taylor, Lamar Padres, and a lot of my friends. From the time we were in the fourth grade until the time we were in the twelfth grade, we had music classes two hours a day. On Saturday, we went to Howard High School, and we had music for three additional hours. So six days a week, we were into music. By the time I got to college, I was burned out. So when I got to grad school, I was looking for something to write about, and I wrote my thesis on the sociology of jazz. Moving forward to about the early 90s, I was on Martha's Vineyard trying to decide what the rest of my life was going to look like, and I took a harmonica. It had been given to me by the jazz musician, the avant-goddess by Lancaster, and I used to go down to the ocean every night. And I couldn't play at all and just blow into these harmonics. I moved to Atlanta in 95, and by 97, I was blessed to not only have a band but a blues radio show. So I developed a course on the blues. So now I've got three ways of working for my own comfort and my own sanity, too, in Atlanta. I had to start something for myself. Sure. So I've got a blues class I'm teaching. I've got a working blues band, and I've got a blues radio show. So that kept me pretty busy, and we laughed about it for nine years. We had a party that lasted nine years. And you didn't and get tired st- of it. And it started every weekend. My sh- my radio show, people would listen and party to, and then we'd go out and party and play. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday was a slow night, but there were about six nights a week during the heyday of Blues Atlanta. But we just kept it going. And I would take all that experience at night and take it to my day class if, if I went to bed. So it was quite a heady and enjoyable time. But we laugh about it. We had a nine-year running party. You know, every Saturday night, you know, you could come to Willis Mill Road to my house or someone else's house in that area because it was bachelors and bachelorettes and ride what we call the blues train. I mean, we had gumbo, fried fish. Well, 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 well. whatever kind of drink or imbibe you wanted. I mean, it was just a good time, and I laugh about that now. But Atlanta used that, to be fun. That kept me in. Atlanta stayed open late during those times, too. The clubs didn't close before. So I got serious about it, and I incorporated myself, and I ended up becoming a consultant in the United States, really, uh, to various uh, mu- museums. My biggest disappointment, however, and I'll talk about it, Please. is that we've never been able to make the Bessie Smith Hall work the way it was built to work. That hall is supposed to be animated, and it's supposed to feature music We were 24/7. sold years ago. We were sold the idea of blues, beer, and barbecue. Blues, beer, and barbecue. And it wasn't just Bessie Smith that came out of this area. There were many people who came out of here or traveled through here or made this a destination. I'm listening uh, to old Johnny Cash song this morning, talking about the the, street, the city limits of Chattanooga, and it's really country blues. Is what well, it then you had Tiny Kennedy who sang the blues. And there's a book called Red River Blues written by Bruce Bastion, and he says the following about Chattanooga. For some reason, there was a whole tradition of black country string bands but somehow, by the time they got to this area, they dissolved and disappeared. Now, I know my late father took violin lessons, so there was a culture here of string music. What we're trying to uncover now, I put together a group called the Blue Goose Holler Band. And the Blue Goose Holler Band is going back to the old-time country music. 
and it represents the music of a group that's been conceptualized as Afro-Latians. That, that means African-Americans who grew up in the mountains in some of the smaller cities of Appalachia. I'll bring up again Carolina Chocolate Drops. They were a good example. Good Those example. kids went back home after going to Ivy League schools and discovered that some of the music they really liked was happening back in these mountains with the few African-American players that were left. Sure. So the music that we call country, the music we call bluegrass, also has an African-American face. Well, it's a, and another thing I, I'm, I'm, learn, I'm learning about it, too, is uh, in the Afro-Latian music, there's a tendency to use some kind of rhythm instrument, uh, not necessarily a drum set, but a hand drum, which is different than than uh, than bluegrass music that just d- d- doesn't use the drum at all. No, traditional bluegrass people, if they see a drum set, they leave. Yeah, I tell you and, not to break it out. Which is a shame because you miss a lot of good bands. But, I mean, everything from the spoons to sticks to a wood block, there's all kinds of things that you could shake. I mean, a rain stick. I, I don't know where that comes from. Well, that's a, Any kind of percussion that would keep it going, keep it going. We, well, we're starting to call that Americana music. But when people ask me what kind of music I play, I tell them I play blue, jazz, Americana, audio, physio, psychic, southern, playlistic, Cadillac, blues music. And, and and we all know that. We all just got that. will roll trippingly off our tongue. What kind of woman is this? Blue Later Jazz today. Americana, Audio, Physio, Psychic, Southern Playlistic, Cadillac Blues Music. <laughs> you would have to write yeah, it we down. We go everywhere me. from Bessie Smith to Goody Mob. Back to Yusef Latif and Nia Taj Mahal. Oh, that's Real a, quick, I hate to interrupt. Is that a Pandora? Can I look that up in Pandora? Is that an app or something? I think you'd, you'd be you'd be lost. Blue he'd jazz lost. Americana audio physio uh, like Southern playlist of Cadillac blues. My my, my buddy, uh, the Reverend Jeff Mosier, uh, one of the best uh, banjo players in the world, one of the best people in the world, and uh, I think the probably the first what we would call jam grass band was uh, Blue Ground Undergrass, and uh, he was very good friends with Colonel Bruce Hampton, who passed away on stage. By God, when you hear, well, he got ate, the surfer got eaten by a shark. Well, he died doing what he wanted to do. No, getting eaten by a shark was not what he wanted to do. But Bruce Hampton, by God, he was on stage yeah, having a birthday that. party, yeah, and there was some young kid up there named Taz Niederauer. He's like fourteen year old black kid who's shredding on a guitar, and Colonel Bruce just lays down and he dies. He just dies right then and there. They, they thought it was part well, of the that show. Was the best part, of, the best part of going out. If I had to go out, I'd like to go out with my boots on, singing a song. Hell yeah. Now I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, All right. um, not just in the city, the in, in America in general, the blues had been almost completely gentrified, incorporated. It was it was it was all white players. You didn't see young brothers and sisters doing a whole lot of blues. They had hip hop took well, over, and you had everybody from Stevie Ray Vaughan to I mean the, the the new guys out there that are that are just killing it today. Like you know the 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 uh, oh my God. Joe Bonamassa. I, I have no. I have no. I don't. I, I don't like to Marcus draw. Marcus King. I don't like to draw racial categories. Well, I don't want to because race to me doesn't mean anything anyway. Now, but there seems to be more there, people. That was into a more, it now. well, yeah, because the typical blues audience, believe it or not, check this out. The typical blues audience is a white male between the ages of twenty-five and eighty. They buy CDs, attend blues concerts, and support. That's your audience. They're the ones that keep the festivals going. That's the reality. Yeah. Most of the audience I play for is white. Very few 
times do I play for a predominantly black audience, especially a black middle-class audience. That's my worst audience. They don't respond at all. Now, the black rich who I play for in Atlanta love it. So there's a racial dynamic. Now, there's something called soul blues that's dying out, but it's big from here back to Louisiana with middle-aged black women and white women. That's the Johnny Taylors, the Bobby Blue Blands. Sure. The, the, uh, the, Otis Clay. No. Um, no, you don't think that would be soul blues. That would uh, uh, the guy from here, Wilson Meadows. These are more upbeat, kind of Malico type sounding m- musics that are appealing in the black community. But the population in the black community that supports the blues is an old population that's dying now. I mean, the median age for a black audience member is probably sixty-five to seventy, with not as much disposable income. So, yes, the major support for the blues in America now comes from "quote unquote." The white community. That's the reality. Now, what they've done in the blues idiom, because some of the white players tend to be a little bit more rockish. Yeah, they're going to go to that British the, blues. They've, they've established a category uh, called blues rock. And Joe Bonamassi was one of the very first Eric people Clapton put in the Led co- Zeppelin. Well, no, Clapton's not in there. You Clapton's don't think? a blues player. No. Mm-mm. It's a difference between the way Eric Clapton plays and the way Joe Bonamassa approaches the music. Very aggressive. So, yes. Uh, uh, Clapton seems to be much more grounded in the old traditional forms of blues, whereas uh, Bonamassa incorporates some of the rock sound and the more modern sound and sometimes can get very loud. Yeah. Well, it, that's, it, it might get loud the name of now, the documentary, here's a difference, right? Here's the difference I find sometimes between so-called white and so-called black players. A true blues player coming out of the African-American community usually has had an experience somewhere in the sanctified church. So they learned that two and four beat very early as children in gospel music. Mm-hmm. Most white players, even friends of mine who've learned the music, learn it from the record. They've never taken themselves to a sanctified church, a baptism, or a pool room to get the, in, the, the, the inflections and the rhythm. The of root is pattern. missing. The root uh, is so, missing. But they're good technical players, right? Yeah. So you and Muddy pointed this out before he died. You'll never be able to sound like me because you didn't have my experience. Let's let's remember that a lot of the blues expression comes directly from racial oppression. Sure also, it does. so the, so it's 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 uh it's an existential kind of music in this terms of its philosophy because we realize that the truth is not the same for everybody. So we keep looking for the truth. So that those are the differences. But now I can't because of someone's ethnic background. And I'm not going to step on anybody's dreams, say that just because one is this particular shade of phenotype, they can't play the blues. No, I can't do that. Now, what I do notice, though, is with a lot of players, we have to teach them, one, to slow down, number two, to keep it in the pocket on the two and four, and number three, if you have the time, go sit over there and listen to some some gospel music. Go listen to some spiritual music. Really get into African-American history so you can really understand what you're doing. Because Buddy Guy points this out. He said, you may look like a blues man, but you ain't really me. I, I love Buddy Guy probably uh, more than any other uh, known blues artist. Buddy and I have had a chance to speak three or four times. And I will say this, uh, years ago, I had him on the air. And I said, who is the, the hot young blues player out there that's impressing you? And he goes, well, man, actually, right now the best guitar slinger in the blues world would probably be John Mayer. And I went, what? John Mayer, your body is a wonderland. And he goes, man, they, he he can kill it, but they won't let him play the blues because he makes too much money doing all the rest of the right. stuff. And then he, of course, 
got caught up with the Grateful Dead and became part right. of uh, Further. And it expanded his repertoire in, in incredibly because they did jug band music, folk music, bluegrass music, and they would take it out of the space and come back. That's right. what they did. But by God, I went to see him. He impressed me so much. I was literally expecting to hear that voice come out. Your body's a wonderland. I was going to have to vomit. I'm at a, a dead show, right, at the Fox Theater. And no, the guy shredded, and he seemed to have picked up the soul. I don't know what his background is. Well, I heard Tinsley Ellis play some. Um, Another good friend. Tinsley Ellis played some uh, Grateful Dead. I mean, it just hypnotized me. I had to lay down. It did it. It just yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. should have been recorded. That was one of the best concerts I've ever heard, and it was also one of the He's best awesome. interpretations of the Grateful Dead. And I don't even think we recorded it. No, and we it don't. Was, it was recorded. But that, it was a, that, would take, that night was a hell of a That would night. take I planning. Wrong, <laughs> I, I told him record this. <laughs> that would take planning. Ooh, now, uh, so my, my final question for you is this. Um, the blues, uh, R&B, uh, soul, you know, they, they, it comes around, it goes around. I mean, even classic arena rock, right. like I mentioned Zeppelin earlier, and, you know, they've got Greta Van Fleet out there now. And Robert Plant will say they are Led Zeppelin. They are the new Led Zeppelin. Right. So things come and go. Country waxes and wanes. Will the blues come back? Does a, a guitar, you know, pyrotechnic guy like Gary Clark Jr., do, do they have the power to bring it back and make it popular I, I again? I think it's going to stabilize. And you just mentioned some very important people. We have younger people uh, like Gary Clark, like uh, – Young brother Cotton down there in Mississippi. Uh, we've got quite a few younger players. Now, I'm going to tell you where you find most of the players now. You get to Memphis, then you drop down to Mississippi or Hill western country. Alabama, yeah. uh, all of Louisiana and Texas. You notice I didn't say much about Atlanta or Charlotte because there's not much going on. Or Chicago. Not a lot going on. Yeah, it is, too. And I tell you, another city where there's a lot going on all the time with music is Detroit and Houston, Texas. You can go well, there you know and what? find somewhere. They got like, the blues in Detroit, right. so they, 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 they got do. reasons. And they have a lot of blues clubs in Detroit. But I'm never going to make the blues. I'm never going to, and I will never do it because, you know, I'm colorblind. I'm not going to racialize uh, the blues. I can just talk about specific instances of where the cultures may be different, but they come together to make the music. Hey, just, hey, this, and we're on the same page on that. It's just uh, it's intriguing to watch the way um, human beings relate and react to certain things. And somebody will say they like the blues, but they don't like jazz. They like opera, but they don't like regular. Oh, they play music. the blues and they can't dance. They, to they, the they blues. can't dance to it, and you know, and it's 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 like all these different. We we force people into boxes and musics into genres and subcategories, and and I think the younger people today are just they have no interest in those categories. And they Maybe don't they have any interest in learning down. they have no interest in learning instruments, which is scary. They'd rather take a computer and put uh have some music input coming from a computer than learn the instrument. That's what's happening with black music. Uh we don't have a lot of kids coming up who are, who have access or who are playing instruments. So the music is really, really changing. But as you said, people now just want to hear something. It doesn't matter what the genre real. is. That's something why real. I say we play blue jazz Americana. Audio physio, psychic, southern playlist, and Cadillac blues music. <laughs> and that's a good place to stop it. All. We got some water, muddy water. Thank you very much, man. Fredpodcast.com, Deacon Blues, Dr. Clark White. Uh, enjoyed this very much. Y'all keep listening. Only in Jeff Styles, America. And I want to say thank you very much to my guest, Dr. Clark White, Deacon Blues, for swinging by. I want to say thank you to all the people that have helped me and supported me 
over these last several months doing this podcast adventure. That would be Tim Kelly and the good folks down at Kelly Subaru, kellysubaru.com. Robin Ring and her team over there at rc2realtysolutions.com, rc2, numeral two, realtysolutions.com, working with distressed properties and people who, well, their property has made them distressed. She will remove the stress. And to RMJ USA, once RMJ Tactical, you can still find them on the, the website, the Internet there. But RMJ USA, they are now expanding their whole brand, this incredible uh, high-tech knifery uh, blade work into the outdoor field. So the, every adventure sport that I know of, the folks generally carry a blade of some kind for some reason, and they're going to specialize in that, and they're looking for feedback. So thank you to all those people who have helped me. Now, if you have been listening from the beginning and you heard the conversation with Deacon Blues, and uh, th- this is going to be short and sweet, it just hit me what a character he was. And this was after losing um, Sandy, the flower guy, last week, and they had the memorial for him. And I think actually his funeral is today. Today's date is it's not important. He was a, He was an icon downtown. And he was a Vietnam vet, and he was certainly somewhat affected. He was sometimes homeless, sometimes he wasn't. But he would gather flowers and take them down to people on dates downtown. He rode a bike. And he had this really funky-looking sort of, I'm, I'm going to use the word in its traditional sense, a gay, you know, 90s-looking sort of hat that would always have flowers tucked in it. And he rode this bike with a basket and it was a girl's bike, and he had a little ding, ding, Pee Wee Herman chain and like that. But guys, you know, some stupid-ass frat guys would mess with him because they were thinking, oh, man, look at this guy. And they didn't know he was a Vietnam vet and a combat vet at that, and he was a bunch of just knuckled-up, massive muscle, and he would whip the hell out of them. Just whip the hell out of them. It, was, it, was a, it happened more than a few times the, the the Sandy that we knew, hey, ladies, how you doing, you know, would disappear. And the Vietnam vet with a thousand-yard stare would come out, and they were going, oh, hell, oh, hell, after they'd never been hit about three times. I'm going to get my ass whipped by a guy with flowers. Yeah, and exactly. You know who his brother is, right? Yes. Yes, J-Bell. Yeah. Okay, boxer. Anyway, That's I just what I'm didn't mean to and jump you, in, and you, you he's know, a friend of mine. And, and don't, you, don't you know that they used to fight? Oh, what did brothers do? All the time. I mean, so, that, I mean, he, he was not the right person to pick a fight with. No. But a character. Before that, you had you had Chico, the flower man, who did something along the same lines. Then Chico decided he was going to follow in the footsteps of this guy called Boot Roots here in town, uh, who was just this solo musician who never really learned how to tune his guitar, but he would play it and sing songs, and people would come up and take his picture. And he had this throne that looked like a space shuttle, and uh, and they'd take his picture, and he stopped playing. He said, that'll be a dollar, and he meant it. And, <laughs> and he meant it. I'll never forget when this guy comes up and takes this picture, because it was such a picturesque thing, this old black guy playing this bluesy guitar, and it sounded like crap, but he was giving it all, and they you come click, he go, that'll be a dollar, and the guy goes, yeah, right, you know, he's from Knoxville, someplace like that, he doesn't know, and he goes, man, that'll be a dollar, and I never saw him get up out of the throne and chase anybody, but he was really good at, at verbal put downs. He said, all right, thank you, brother. I hope you wake up with a goat. And uh, whatever it was, he he got the point across that he was really serious. You know, he, he wanted a trademark, you know, was himself. So I was thinking about characters, and I've known so many over the years. And I, I know that the, the, the website says, 
outdoor life and, and music and things that are, I'm passionate about. And I, I generally hate people. Human beings are just at the bottom of my list. Uh, they suck uh, pretty much across the board. When you find somebody who doesn't suck, you know, hang on to them, friend, family member, whoever they are. But characters are becoming more and more rare. And Deacon is one. And Sandy was one. And I've known so many. I've been very lucky in my life to know real characters. And I don't know why God seems to call them home at a more rapid rate than the dull and the drab and the boring people that populate this country and our workplaces right now. It's like normalization and conformity is the thing to do. Don't try to to, to be yourself. Don't dance to your own, you know, you know, beat of your own drummer. And it's just a terrible lesson to teach the kids. And we're ending up with this homogenized society that just really bothers me. And it's the characters that stick out. And I just want to tell you a very brief story about one. And this guy was very important to me. And uh, it's something I've mentioned before that I've never gone into. But, but when I was young, the middle class, the lower middle class, white, black, it didn't make any difference. They did have the help. Remember the movie The Help? Uh, they had maids. They had nannies. And the people can debate about whether that's racist or not all they want to. But the fact is, is these these women needed work and they were proud to have it. And I had uh, a maid, I guess is what we refer to her as. Her name was Ollie, Ollie Keith. And she had stories of her own. And as far as I could tell, until I was probably about six, I thought she was my mom. I mean, I saw her a lot more than I saw my parents. Uh, she was there when I got up. She was there when I went to bed. This is the very beginning of women going into the workplace. And my mom went into banking and, um, Ollie had a son and his name was RC. I do not know what RC stood for. I could not tell you to this day, even though this guy meant so much to me and he, he enriched my life. RC Keith, nobody called him that. They called him whoop. His name was whoop. Just like you go whoop somebody's ass. It was W H O O P but it was pronounced with a U, whoop. And that's, that's what it was. They had one other nom de plume, nom de guerre, I guess I should say, because he joined the Korean, uh, the, the, the military during the Korean War, I think at 15, certainly no older than 16, and he just made up a name because he needed to get the hell out of that town, that segregated town and that mean town. And uh, so he became Johnny Myers, and he became Sergeant Johnny Myers. So he, he was Sergeant Johnny Myers. He was R.C. Keith when it was time for him to get his paycheck, but he was whoop the rest of the time. And he played minor league baseball and he had all these war stories and very much like Sandy, he had these forearms that looked like Popeye and veins popped out of them. And he had a couple of tattoos and that was back before getting ink was all that cool. I mean, this was a military guy. He was not educated. He was not articulate. He was not smart in a book sense, but he was incredibly wise in the street sense, in the common sense. And he partied like a rock star. My God, the man would smoke a joint until the ashes fell behind his teeth. I learned, as a matter of fact, early on, if you were smoking a joint with whoop, you went ahead and hit it as many times as you wanted to because when you gave it up, it was gone. It would just go boom and it'd be gone. And he loved malt liquor and he loved liquor of all kinds. And the drunker he got, the more animated he got and the more 
just ostentatious and gregarious he became. And he would start showing us how he w- would make these plays when he was shortstop. You knew he really had a buzz when he started doing the shortstop moves and talking about how he threw this guy out, he blocked this guy or something, sliding into second. And uh, it just he was just this remarkable force of nature. And my family business, my mother's side of the family had a, had a wholesale warehouse, grocery wholesale warehouse. They sold everything from canned peaches to tobacco and cheese and to, to I mean, you know, hog shorts and, and horse feed and, you know, 100-pound bags, whatever, to barbed wire, you know, to, to make a living and, and to live out in the country. And uh, we would load these trucks, and I worked from the time I was 12 years old every summer of my life. And uh, once we moved back to the south of Ohio, I worked during any time when I, I was not in school. And uh, I and my cousins and maybe one or two other people were the sole Caucasians actually working the floor as floor walkers. We, you know, we would go up to a guy, he would spit out a bunch of things that he needed on this truck and would take these big hand trucks and we would go to, through four or five warehouses and just and get them and then come back and roll them up, boom, of this ramp and throw them on the truck. And then of course, you know, get in the truck and drive them to wherever they needed to go, whatever the destination, the run was. And, um, the whoop was special. And the fact that he, very much like Dr. White, Deacon Blues, he didn't see color. Um, he didn't call me any names. He, he, he actually called me Littlin, Littlin, Littlin. That was, that was the, that's what he referred to me as, Littlin. And uh, the fact that I was, you know, uh, a part of the family, that, of the company that, that ran the place meant nothing to him. Uh, he just liked me, and he kind of coached me. And I had one cousin, my youngest cousin, uh, Keith Roop, who passed away a couple of years ago, opiate overdose, unfortunately, like so many. And uh, we were the only white people that ever went to the Sugar Shack. The Sugar Shack was the club at the edge of town that was for and by African-Americans. And we were all cool out there. I mean, we would dance. We would just have party until the Alabama black folks showed up right across the state line. They didn't have a good attitude about that, and the the bartender would come around and he would say, "Hey y'all, you need to get out here. Those those those, those bamas will come." So we we would get out of there. So we didn't want to get you know stabbed, killed, cut, whatever. And um, Whoop was was there with us during most of this time. We would go to places. Uh, one of our favorite places to go was at a place called No Dump. No Dump. Well, I'll meet you at No Dump. And No Dump was just a hill, a big hill on the edge of town. It was between Victory and Farmers High. Farmers High and Victory, Georgia, little communities that didn't even have a crossroad, no light. But it was just this big hill, and there was a big tree. And it was I was told it was a hanging tree. It was a lynching tree back in the day. And it had that look about it. And there was an old sign that had been up there for 10 million years that said no dump. And that's exactly what it was called. And we would go up there, and we would party. And every year at Christmas, uh, my grandfather for a while, Bill Roop, um, and a powerful man he was too. You knew a man was in the room when he walked in. Then his son, my uncle David Roop, they're both gone now. Um, everybody that worked there, it didn't matter if they were in the office, if they were in the stationary pool, if they were, you know, salespeople, all the workers, all the truckers, they would just say brown or white, brown or white, and you get a bottle of liquor. This was on Christmas, Adam, the day before Christmas Eve. Um, and you'd get a bottle of liquor, but you say brown, it might be whiskey, it might be scotch, it might be anything. You say white, it'd probably be vodka, gin, who knows. And uh, one Christmas Adam, 
Um, I remember Whoop very well. He was just knee walking, slobbering, terribly drunk. And uh, I had my bottle. I had said white, so I had some rum in this bottle. And he came up and he had a cup. And he said, hey, give me a splash, man. Give me a splash. Give me a splash. And I, and I handed it over and he poured the whole bottle in. It took about this much grapefruit juice, barely, just barely discolored the liquor, and he killed it. And he was already so buzzed. And me and a guy named Tony Wyatt, um, a very good friend of mine, he graduated with me, a young black man. He died in a house fire, unfortunately. He threw his wife and his kid out the second-story window. She caught the kid, and then right before he jumped, he just looked, and he went back in the house never came back out. We don't know why, but we think he probably went back in for the family album, the the photo album, um, but lost him. But me and Tony and Keith, my cousin, take whoop, and he's now at the point of passing out, and we lay him down in his little bitty cottage in the middle of Burns Quarters, which was the housing unit, the federal housing unit, um, the project for our tiny town. And uh, it was warm. It was unusually warm that day. And he just went in and was boom and just did this Pete Rose dive right onto the couch. And uh, we said, we'll come back and get you here later because we're going to go out and party and do some stuff. Later on that night, we came back, and it was getting cold. It was getting real cold. And uh, we all had jackets on. And uh, he just had his screen door you know, on. The door was open. And he was still laying there. And he was snoring away. And I'll never forget Tony. We were trying to wake him up. Whoop, get up. Whoop, come on. Come on. Whoop, get up. Get up. And uh, Tony looked at me and goes, man. That guy's deader than hell, man. And we walked on, and we went on about our way. And it dropped down to about 19 degrees that night. And Whoop died. Just died. And it's impossible for me to not think that we were responsible even though the doctor in town just swore up and down, swore up and down that we were not. He had over-imbibed. He was laying on his chest, his stomach, and the cold had nothing to do with it. They just He died because he was an alcoholic and his body quit working. And, you know, this is back in the 70s, so I'm not sure that this particular doctor was all that smart to begin with. But, you know, he's... He talked about the alcohol pooling up around his heart cavity. I don't know if that's possible, but all I know is that we lost him and all of us felt so responsible. And the next day on Christmas Eve, when I went downtown and I see all my friends from the warehouse and they tell me what happened, I'm horrified, mortified. I did talk to the doctor, but the, the next day after Christmas, I had to leave I went back to Ohio to see some friends of mine I've not seen in years. So we go up there and uh, have a good time. And I miss the funeral, which I still regret to this day. And uh, came back down, and I remember seeing my cousin. And they were closer than than we were. I mean, my cousin Keith and Whoop were best friends. And just my cousin Keith would drop the N-word like that and just constantly ragging each other. That That never, ever you know, I never got to that place. I would not cross that barrier. I, I, I can't stand that word coming out of my mouth. But that's the way they were. And my cousin Keith said, 
I'd pay $1,000 to hear him say my name. I can't forget that. And Keith was a character too, my cousin. And he's gone. And I look at the people around me here in town, in this town, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and across the, the country, the people that listen to this podcast for whatever reason, and you know who you are if you're a character. You know who you are if you're a character. And I'm begging you not to die. I'm, I'm begging you not to die. Stay alive because the world needs people like you, nonconformists, swimming against the stream people who are entertaining and people who are funny and people who are infuriating because the rest of the world is drab and dull and boring and why would anybody strive for that i do not know but to this day i still miss whoop very much as i miss several of my friends who were characters but it's just something i wanted to say and uh, i'll probably tell a few more stories like that in, in coming weeks and months i probably won't cry during most of them uh, but this is one, again, I, I, I have to live with. I have to live with this one. And uh, I did one time. I was in Florida. And I'll wrap it up like this. I was I was sitting on the edge of the, the coast. And I went to sleep. It was at night. And I was just stargazing and listening to the crashing surf. And I had a dream that he came to me. And he talked to me. And when I was looking at him, he had his eyes were black and they were filled with stars. They, they were filled with stars, like the night sky. And he was telling me it was all right. He called me a little one. I hope to God everybody out there has somebody like that. I really do. And I appreciate you listening to Fred Podcast. <laughs>